I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to True Crime and Consequences. I'm Kari. And I'm Brian. And we are just a husband and wife shooting the shit about true crime. So in this series of episodes, we're going to talk about one of my other favorite cases. Most people will know it from the Netflix series, Making a Murderer. Fantastic series. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. It's about 20 hours of viewing, unless you're like me, and you're sitting there taking detailed notes, and then it's like 60 hours, (laughs) which is about how long. I spent watching all those documentaries, taking notes, fact-checking online, and I have 136-ish, I actually have like 138 now, pages of notes. 138, that's a lot. 138 pages of notes. It's a lot of notes. Um, Probably more than we'll actually cover, but I was being um, kind of a perfectionist and trying to get all the details, and that's just who I am as a person, so we're just going to deal with that. So if I sound at all confused, it's because I have 138 pages of notes and I'm trying to keep track of where I am. So in order to understand this case, which is, in my opinion, another egregious case of potentially wrongful conviction, because this one has not proven out to be wrongful conviction yet. So that's something that is currently being worked on every single day, even in the midst of a quarantine still being worked on. So I'll have all the details up until now. If any new information comes to light later on, we will do an update episode so that everyone can stay as up to date as possible on what's going on. This case also covers more than one person. It covers Stephen Avery, obviously, but it also covers his nephew, Brendan Dassey. And we're going to cover both of those because they're so intertwined. You really can't cover one without the other. To understand Stephen a little bit and what he has gone through as a human, you kind of have to go back in time a little bit. Uh, Stephen Avery comes from uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, um, where your family comes from, correct? Or at least some of it? Yeah, part of it. Like Wisconsin, lived, Michigan. Lived there for a few of my childhood years. Where exactly? Uh, Chippewa Falls area. Okay, right on. So I hear more about the Michigan years. When talking to your family and you. So, yeah, there was... Yeah, Wisconsin oh, was kind of short-lived, right? Um, it was two different periods, oh, but okay. only for about a year each. Right, right. So, it, you know, you have more experience in Michigan. And then you guys moved here when you were, what, 10? Yeah, I was 10 years old. We live in Oregon, by the way, in case anyone missed it before. So, anyway, so Stephen was born in Wisconsin. He was a lifelong Wisconsinite. Is that what they're called? I believe so. Okay. So he's a lifelong Wisconsinite. Simple family, really, really close family. So Stephen and his family all live on the Avery Salvage Yard property, which is um, in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, the name of the city and also the name of the county. So that makes it a little easier. And lived there pretty much his whole life. Um, but he it wasn't without... It's issues. I mean, like I said, they were a simple family, very close knit, kind of avoided the general public of the town that they lived in. I mean, you know, the kids went to school, but 
None of them did very well in school. Stephen had a very low IQ. His IQ was only 70, so he struggled a lot with school. So his primary thing as a, as a young, kind of middle school-aged young man was to just work for the family's salvage yard. 40-acre piece of property, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So they were very isolated, but they liked it that way. You know, they, they liked to just be the Avery clan. And of course, their subsequent spouses, as they got older and got married, they just kind of all congregated on this really nice, large 40-acre piece of property. But Stephen was not without his flaws. I mean, he was a typical young man, a typical teenage man. Um, in 1982, when he was 19, he met the gal who would become his wife, Lori Matheson. She was already a single mom, had a son named uh, Jason, and Stephen immediately took a shine to him and, of course, to her and said, you know, his dad's not around, so I'm going to take that spot. 19 years old, he's like, I'm going to take, you know, over as Jason's dad and we're going to start a family and let's get married. And so they did. And so they all lived there on the Avery property and had a pretty nice life. And and shortly after getting married, uh, Lori got pregnant and they had several children. I believe it was four total the last being a set of twins, which was born in 1985. But also when he was 19, he was 19, and he did stupid 19-year-old things. Uh, one example and something he got arrested for was him and his buddies were kind of all out in the yard, goofing off, being stupid, having a bonfire, and he, they all had the genius idea that they should throw a cat into the fire. And so they did that, stupid teenage crap. And he got arrested for animal cruelty, obviously. Understandably. Right, of course. And that he even says, you know, there was no excuse for what I did. I was just young and stupid and someone had the stupid idea and we just rolled with it, which we all know teenage boys tend to do. I mean, we have a 20-year-old son and we know how stupid they can get, yeah. you know. So what are you going to do? He also had some issues with some of the family that lived on the property. Uh, he had a cousin named Sandra Morris who he did not get along with. And he she was married to a Manitowoc County Sheriff's deputy. I believe his name was Bill. He's not an important character in the story, so I didn't necessarily write down his name, but I'm pretty sure it was Bill or Bob. I can't remember for sure. But Stephen had some problems with her. So one day, she, she had been spreading rumors all over town about Stephen, talking about how stupid he was and how... Um, he was doing all sorts of inappropriate things, and none, none of which was true, according to Stephen. And so one day he'd had it. He was fed up. And this is kind of the instigator of everything that came after in Stephen's life. He got upset with Sandra, his cousin. And one morning, it was early in the morning, four or five o'clock in the morning, she was heading off to work. And he thought it would be a brilliant idea to put her on the spot and chastise her for what he had been doing to him, what she had been doing to him by talking a bunch of smack all over town. And he ran her car off Avery Road, which is the road that runs through their salvage yard, and then threatened her with a gun, but it was unloaded. He was just trying to scare her to get her to stop talking shit about him. Not very smart. No, not at all. But again, Stephen lived a pretty isolated life and only had an IQ of 70. And this was 1985, so he was only 21 years old. Still young and dumb, you know? And uh, 
obviously, this was not a good situation. The police were called because, again, Sandra Morris was married to a Manitowoc County Sheriff's deputy and was also, because of that, friends with numerous other Manitowoc County Sheriff's deputies. Stephen got arrested and um, she filed charges. Pretty sure there was some assault charges in there, but they dropped those because he had he never touched her. So he didn't actually assault her. But this started a domino effect in Stephen's life, unfortunately. Because during this same time period, while the case that Sandra had started against him was being adjudicated, on July 29th, 1985, Penny Bernston and her family were out at Lake Michigan. And around 3 p.m., she decided to go for a jog along like the shoreline of Lake Michigan, like she did all the time. They lived near there, so it was an easy little you know, day trip. So she's out jogging, and as she's jogging, she's passed by a man wearing a black leather jacket. And she took note of that because it was a really nice day. I mean, it's July at Lake Michigan. It's, it's hot. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. Most everyone's wearing, you know, shorts and T-shirts, not jeans and a black leather jacket. So it, it just looked kind of off. Out of place. Right. Notice so, things out of place. Right. So she jogged past him. And he smiled at her, and she smiled back because she was a polite lady, and she kept jogging. Well, she turns around to come back to her family, and she sees the same man with the leather jacket. And he's right in her path. So she tries to kind of sidestep, even claiming to have stepped into the, um, some of the lake water at the shoreline to try to get out of his way. And as she tried to pass him, he grabbed her, dragged her into the nearby more wooded area, sexually assaulted her, threatened to kill her, beat the crap out of her, and then left. So obviously, super traumatic experience. Of course. Now, he did try to rape her, but was unable to succeed in penetrating her. So it was a sexual assault, not a rape. Okay. Um, so... Penny was found by a couple who had taken a walk down through the wooded area, and the police were called, and she was taken to the hospital. And of course, this woman has been completely traumatized. She's beaten. I've seen the photos of what the from the hospital. She was black and blue. Her eyes were nearly swollen shut. Her lips were swollen and split open. I mean, she was in bad, bad shape. And clearly... Completely traumatized. I mean, who wouldn't be? So, of course, the police show up and they ask her to try to help them identify her attacker. So she starts describing this man. The fact that he was, she first noticed him and he was out of place because he was wearing a leather jacket on a hot summer day. Um, that he had kind of mid-length sandy blonde hair. That, um, you know, that he was wearing white underwear. That... You know, he had tried to rape her but didn't succeed. She had scratched him with her fingernails. She made that very clear that she'd been scratching at him in an attempt to defend herself. So they did the usual, took scrapings from under her fingernails, performed a rape kit just in case, you know, because he tried to rape her. He just didn't succeed. So they took, you know, the typical rape kit, the combing of the pubic hair and the uh, vaginal swabs and all that kind of stuff, the usual rape kit stuff. So as she's describing her attacker, to uh, Sheriff's Deputy Judy Dvorak, 
who was the one sent out to take her statement. As she's describing her attacker, Judy Dvorak looks to another officer in the room and says, that sounds like Stephen Avery. Or he had a suspect in mind. Right. Strictly based on physical description, nothing else. Even though the eye color didn't match, the height didn't match, the weight didn't match, and come to find out later that she identified her attacker as wearing white underwear when Stephen Avery didn't even own any underwear because he was a commando guy. So, well, the police wouldn't have known no, that. No, I said it came out later. Like, that, obviously, that wasn't something that they would have acknowledged at that point, but something we found out later on in the proceedings. So, it is decided that an officer named Jean Couchet will come down to the hospital and have her help him make a composite sketch of her attacker. What came out later, or was, I should say, was alleged later by... Uh, Stevens defense team is that it's pretty clear that the composite sketch that Jean Couchet drew was not, in fact, based off of Penny Bernstein's or Bernstein's uh, description, but was based off of the booking photo of Stephen when he was arrested for the Sandra Morris incident. And if you've seen the composite and the photo, they're essentially identical. So it bolsters that. Also, what, what also bolsters that argument is that Jean Couchet had a uh, framed art piece made and put up in his office. Um, he has since passed away, but uh, it was up in his office and it was at, on the top. There was a picture, the, the drawing. And on the bottom were two booking photos of Stephen Avery. And they were the two booking photos from the Sandra Morris incident not from when he was arrested for the Benny, Penny Bernstein assault. Why is that? Uh, probably because they look the most like it. Right. That's what I'm saying. But anyway, um, one of the other things that was disturbing about Penny's uh, questioning you know, at the hospital was that as she did her description, her was giving her statement, they, of course, were writing this down, and then they had it all typed up. And they brought it to her to have her sign her statement. And she made it clear that she couldn't read it because her eyes were so swollen from the beating that she couldn't read this this typed up statement. And the officer told her, sign the document anyhow. So she signed it, but she wasn't, wasn't unable able to, to confirm. confirm that the accurate information was in there. Exactly. She couldn't confirm that. Um, they also, after they talked about Stephen Avery to her, had essentially described Stephen Avery to her and showed her the composite sketch that Jean Couchet had drawn when she's shown a photo lineup that included Stephen. She picked out Stephen. Well, duh. All she's been hearing is Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. All she's been hearing is detailed descriptions of Stephen from the police officers. And then she's shown a composite sketch that is clearly of Stephen. So, of course, she's going to pick out Stephen from the photo lineup. I mean, you know, it was just... The alleged the allegation is that it was a setup because the officers were pissed off at Stephen over the situation with Sandra. Could be. Right. But that was the allegation. That's never been completely proven, but that was the allegation. Although I think the way it ended makes it pretty clear that that, that allegation was at least somewhat correct. Um and the fact that they didn't they told her to sign this document without her even being able to read it really bothers me. You know what I mean? Like it bothers me. She couldn't read it to confirm that what she told them is what is in this document. 
you know, it bothers me. It just, it bothers me. So, um, are we saying that the information that was in there was inaccurate? I mean, did they change her statement when they transcribed it? Not that I could tell when I saw the document. Then I guess it, in the long it, run, it ultimately probably doesn't matter. it really didn't matter. But the fact that that's how they were handling it is what bothers me because it it shows that they don't necessarily care if something is accurate. They're going to get their victim to agree to it no matter what. Or maybe they were just confident that. You know, they had listened to the what she said over and over again. Did they record it before they transcribed it? I have or? heard no audio recordings oh, of the so of maybe, the statements. Maybe it was made. just okay. I and I looked. I looked to see if there were audio if there was audio and I couldn't find any audio from her hospital uh questioning anywhere. Okay. Anyway, also uh Stephen alleges that when he was ultimately arrested for the Penny Bernston uh sexual assault, Sheriff Kosorak uh, which was the sheriff of the county of Manitowoc County at the time, allegedly told him when he walked into the sheriff's department in handcuffs, I've got you now. Like he had been planning to get like, him. Right, because there had been kind of longstanding animal. To, to kind of preface a little bit, the Avery family was not popular in their town because they were kind of loners and not necessarily well-educated, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it, they just kind of stood stood out like a sore thumb in their town compared to, you know, your normal people who work normal jobs. And, and you know, when kids get older, they move out and have their own lives. And in the Avery family, they just kind of all stay together indefinitely, which I think is great. I love the idea of multi-generational families and, and communal living kind of situations within that family. But, you know, for most people, that's weird. Yeah, it's more of an old-fashioned way of doing things. It is. And what you gather about the Avery family from, if you research them at all, is that they are a very, like, old-fashioned, old-school kind of family who just, they kind of stick together because they know that they collectively are the only ones that they can count on. You know, that that strangers disappoint. Family really doesn't. Wow. Most of the time? Well, agreed. But... The point, you understand what I'm saying, though, is like, it's just an old school mentality of family first and stick together. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. So that's kind of where we were at in with the Avery family. Now, when Stephen's attorney, he had gotten a court appointed attorney. And when Kasorak brought him into the sheriff's office and allegedly said, I've got you now to Stephen, he ordered, Kasorak himself ordered that Stephen not be put on the inmate list, which is usually made public in some way. It's it's published somewhere, particularly so attorneys can find out where their clients are. So he was not to be put on the inmate list. He was not to be allowed any phone calls whatsoever, and he was not to have any visitors, including his attorney. So they were specifically trying his, to hide that he was there. They were hiding him. And from, keep him from getting any counsel. Right. Because then he could tell his version of the story. Now, Stephen maintained that that his his wife had just given birth to twins within two days of this occurring. He has family. They, you know, the Avery family sticks together. All his family vouched for him, said that that day, which was July 29th, he was accounted for the entire day with his wife and their new babies, with his mother and father, with his brothers, with his nieces and nephews. He was accounted for that entire day in addition to not matching the physical description that Penny gave the police. 
he had an alibi, but they called his family fabricators, that they were just covering for him. Now, that's always a possibility in a tight-knit family, but at the same time, when taken in context with other problems with the uh, description and and stuff. There was no physical evidence either that tied Stephen to the assault. You know, I mean, so you have the fact that he had, yes, it was his family, but he had an alibi. There's no physical evidence to prove that he had anything to do with it. And the sheriff's department had a clear-cut bias when it came to the Avery family, but specifically when it came to him because of the Sandra Morris incident. So, I mean, it wasn't a good situation for anyone involved. Even the local Manitowoc police officers, the, not the sheriff's department, Manitowoc PD. Okay, the city PD. The city PD told the sheriffs that they had the wrong guy. Flat out. There's memos, documentation to prove it. They all told him that they have the wrong guy and you need to look at Gregory Allen. Now, Gregory Allen was a local guy who had a long criminal record, which included several sexual assaults. Several. He also matched the physical description that Penny Bernston had given. And, as fate would have it, at the time that the Bernston attack happened, Gregory Allen had been under constant surveillance by the police department because of his alleged crimes up until that point. On July 29th, the day of Penny's assault, the officers assigned to watch Gregory Allen got called away to a more serious matter during the exact time frame that Penny was attacked. So he had an opening and... And he took it. Because he knew he... I mean, he knew he was being watched. He had to have known he was being watched. So... But when the city police contacted Sheriff Kasorak to tell him that he had the wrong guy and they expressed these concerns because they're like, no, this is an innocent man. You've just put in jail for this. The sheriff is quoted as saying, don't worry about it. We have our guy. They have the guy they wanted. Exactly. That's what I said. They had the guy they wanted, not the guy who actually did it. And even the DA's office expressed doubts in that Stephen was guilty with the exception of the main DA, Dennis Vogel. He was sure Stephen had done this, but all his like ADAs, his assistant DAs underneath him, had serious doubts and had told them to look at Gregory Allen. Well, they had probably dealt with his other cases. They had. They had specifically dealt with, with Mr. Allen before. So they knew his MO, and they knew what he was capable of. And they knew that he had been being watched by the police. And they knew that the police had been called away that exact day at that exact time. What are the odds? And Stephen had an alibi. He was accounted for for every single second of the day from 1.30 p.m. at least to 5 p.m. at least. Ms. Bernston was attacked somewhere between 3.45 and 3.50. He was with his family during that time with his wife and his new babies. And I mean, what, what dad is going to leave his wife who just gave birth to twins and his brand new twins that he was so proud of because these were his, you know, his, his babies, his little boys. They were twin boys. Stephen Avery Jr. was the name of one of them. Well, I mean, if he were a dirtbag, that might not I, be a motivation uh, to stay. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, Ted Bundy did have 
a girlfriend with a daughter that he considered his own, and he's still out doing whatever. If, so. you're, if you're already convinced he's a dirtbag, then, then that wouldn't be a reason necessarily right. to, to buy it more than any other reason, right. is all I'm saying. Right. So obviously the case, you know, went forward because you had the main sheriff, Sheriff Kosorak, and you had the main DA, Dennis Vogel, determined to nail Stephen. So it goes to trial, of course. And of course, Miss Bernston was a compelling witness. I mean, it, you're sitting in a courtroom and you're a juror and you have this woman who's been sexually assaulted and beaten and left for dead on what should have been a beautiful, relaxing day. And she's up there crying and, and pointing at Stephen, you know, when they ask, you know, do you know who did this to you? Yes. Is he in this room? Yes. Can you point him out, please? And she points straight at Stephen Avery. I mean, that's it. That's the end. Yeah, that's that's very compelling. You for don't a jury. need you don't need anything else. Didn't matter that there was no physical evidence. Didn't matter that he had alibis. Didn't none of that mattered because once you have that emotional jolt to the system of the jury, it's over. It's over. Yeah, you know. So he was ultimately found guilty of sexual assault, attempted murder, and false imprisonment, and was sentenced to thirty-two years in prison. Yeah, not a good time. Not a good time at all. And unfortunately, he could never get parole either because in Wisconsin, specifically, I'm I'm not sure of any other states and I'm sure there are others, but in Wisconsin specifically, in order to be eligible for parole, an offender must admit guilt. Uh, and of course he didn't. Stephen absolutely, adamantly, completely refused to ever say he did this because he didn't do it. Well, and that's perfect. You know, if you're innocent, don't. Right. Never, Confess. ever, ever say you did something you didn't do just because it might because because he even said at one point, you know, they kept telling me if you just admit what you did, we'll let you out like right now. And he's like, I don't care. I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do just to, earn, to gain my freedom because that's not real freedom. I have to say I did something that I didn't do. Right. You and know? then the public would be convinced he did. Right. Exactly. Um, also, during this time while he was in prison, obviously his marriage fell apart, as oh, so many do. As so many do, when one of the spouses gets incarcerated, especially for that long. I mean, she had all those kids to take care of. I mean, they had with her son, and I believe they had four. I'm pretty sure three or four. I mean, she had like four to five kids, most of whom were under the age of three. And she was going to have to take care of them all by Alone. herself. I mean, she had help from Stephen's family, but that's not the same thing. You know, having the husband, the father there is very, very important, especially for the boys in those really formative years where they're building a bond with their father. So she got very stressed. Stephen got very stressed. They got into a lot of um, pen pal arguments that weren't pretty. They weren't pretty at all. They both said some really vicious things to each other because the relationship was just completely falling apart. So ultimately, they divorced and Lori got full custody of the kids because he's in prison for the next 30 years, you know? So the yeah, sad if you're a convicted part, rapist and you're locked away, it's not hard to the take saddest custody thing away from about him. that, though, was that up until they, they started having major problems and, and were separating, she was bringing the kids to see him like every week. And when things fell apart, she took all the kids off the visitors list and refused to even let the like his parents or his sister Barb or anybody take the kids to see him. 
She just cut it off completely. That's harsh. Uh, that's what I said. But, I mean, I understand it was a very emotionally charged situation for everybody. It creates a lot of stress, as we know, personally. Yeah, but still, that's pretty <clears throat> harsh. It's incredibly harsh. Incredibly harsh. So, Stephen, from 1986, which was a year after the incident occurred, to 1994, um, was continuously appealing his conviction all the way up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but it kept getting to, denied. Um, you know, because even to a Supreme Court justice, Penny Bernston, video of Penny Bernston sitting on that witness stand pointing directly at Stephen is going to be compelling even to, because they're human beings too. Yeah, but the main thing is, have there been any technical well, up till errors that point, no that... there up till that point there wasn't anything that uh violated as far as they could see violated his constitutional rights or uh due process or any of that stuff so you know he was kind of screwed unfortunately now in 1994 Stephen got a new set of lawyers he got a gentleman by the name of Stephen Glenn and a gentleman by the name of Robert Hennick, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, forgive me if that's wrong, Mr. Hennick. Feel free to correct me in the comments if you're listening. <laughs> so Rob Hennick went to the courthouse himself after they were hired to look through all the boxes of evidence. Because his whole job now is to, yeah, he's a post-conviction relief attorney. So he's trying to find any evidence he can to maybe get this case re-adjudicated or uh, get it com the sentence commuted or, you know, anything he can do to free Stephen because he he and Stephen Glenn believed in his innocence. They just needed to prove it. Yeah, you got to find some new evidence to... So he goes through all the boxes and ultimately finds an envelope with the fingernail scrapings from underneath Penny Bernstein's fingernails that had never been tested because they didn't have DNA testing in 1985. Right. So <laughs> this is 1990. So we have some DNA uh, testing at this point. It's still kind of in its infancy, but it's there. It's available to them to do. So he sends the scrapings off to the lab, the crime lab, um, and they did find DNA in those fingernail scrapings under her nails, none of which matched Stephen. Not, not even close to... It wasn't Stephen. Okay. And unfortunately, though, they take this to Judge Hazelwood, who was the judge that handled the original trial. And as I said in the West Memphis Three videos, oftentimes the same trial judge, if he's still available to do it, because some have gone up to political positions, some have retired. But in a lot of cases, the original trial judge is the one to look at any new evidence and make decisions about post-conviction relief motions and that kind of thing until it goes up to the higher courts. He said... That because they couldn't identify the source of the DNA, he wouldn't consider it and denied the motion. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that means. So he couldn't. So they, they, they were, were the able scrapings. To, it was the scrapings from under her fingernails. They were able to eliminate Stephen. There was an unidentified male DNA under her nails. But the judge stated that because those that could have been her husband's DNA or it could have been the people who stopped the couple that found her in the bushes and helped her, it could have been from one of them, from the the man that was involved in in helping her. However, Penny Bernston never stated that she'd scratched anyone other than her attacker. Right. I mean, I suppose she could have inadvertently scratched someone when they were trying to help her up off the ground or whatever, but 
She had been very clear that she had purposefully scratched her attacker, never indicating she'd scratched anybody else. Okay. And she didn't seem like the type of person to me who would get into a situation with her husband that would cause her to, like, you know, scratch well, his back or something. But then to, again, it's hard I to can't guess who those type are. Who knows? So, you know. Well, she was very buttoned down, straight laced kind of gal. But, you know, some of the most buttoned down, straight laced kind of gals I know are wild. Right. Okay. So I understand now. I just didn't understand what that meant. So basically, the judge is saying since we can't prove that it's not her husband or the guy who helped her, we can't prove who it belongs to. So he just kind of fluffed it off and was like, nope, not going to. It's not strong enough. It's essentially what he's saying. So in 96 and 97, um, they had exhausted by then, by 96 and 97, his lawyers had exhausted all of their appeal options, quite literally all of them, because you only have so many in so much time. Right. Unfortunately. Um, and p- again, Stephen was repeatedly told that if he would just admit to what he, quote, did, that they'd let him out. And he's like, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. I'm, ju- I'm not going to do it. I would rather just sit here and die here. Than, than tell the world that I did this because I didn't, which I, is a commendable thing. I can understand that. Oh, I'd do the same thing. I'd do the same thing. However, the temptation to be able to get out I can, is you pretty know, strong, I'm I, sure. So I can understand both sides of that. I, I have to commend that, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it, but to be able to stick to it, you know, even though it's like, you can walk out if you say this, but... I basically said that he has a brass pair. For sure. That's, that is a pretty good way to put it. That's a brass pair right there. Because I, I can't say with any degree of certainty that if I were in a similar situation and they offered me like, you say this and you can walk out today, kind of like the Alfred plea that the West Memphis Three took, um, I can't say I wouldn't take that. Yeah. I mean, it'd be really tempting. I really can't say with any degree of certainty that I would say, I mean, I'd love to sit here and be like, I would never do that. I would be Steven and I would stick to my gut. But dude, prison sucks. Especially when you think you're out of options. All my appeals are gone. Everything's gone. So now the only way I can think I can get out is to say it. And you never did. And you never did. Not not once. Not to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So his mother... Stephen's mother, Dolores, who is just, everyone online calls her Mama Avery because we've kind of all adopted her as like a mom because she's just the sweetest thing. Um, very poor health. Dolores, if you're listening to this, I love you and please stay strong. You know, things will get better. To the entire Avery family, I love you guys and things will get better, I promise. Uh, Steve's mom, Dolores, fought like I've never seen a mom fight for her son. I mean, she spent hours copying all kinds of documents, court files, statements, evidence, the whole thing, and like sending them to all the major news outlets like Dateline and 2020 and uh, Nightline and like all those big, you know, investigative reporter news shows. She sent them to all of them because she was just desperate. And she's like, my son did not do this. I have to help him. You know, the lawyers can't help him anymore. I mean, they were trying, but there's only so much you can do when you've exhausted all your appeals. At this point, the only thing that was going to save him was legit new evidence. Something that could exonerate him. Right. Well, luckily, the Innocence Project, uh, the Wisconsin Innocence Project, decided to take up his case in 2001. They immediately requested new DNA testing of all the available evidence. So you had like the finger scrapings. And things like that. And when 
they were going through all the evidence. They found that there were 13 pubic hairs because when they do a rape kit, they comb the victim's pubic hairs and just collect anything that comes out. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. So there were 13 pubic hairs in an envelope. 11 of them had no roots, so they were useless because they have to have a root in order to be DNA tested. That left, what, two hairs, one of which was identified as a female, so it was most likely Penny's own pubic hair. That would be an understandable assumption. This left one hair, one, that had the root on it still. It was tested. It, again, conclusively, because at this point we're 2001, DNA technology is way better at this point than it was in 94, right? A lot more sensitive. Way more sensitive. It's, it, and, it, and that's still considered archaic compared to what we can do now, but it was leaps and bounds ahead of what could be done in 1994, which was leaps and bounds ahead of what could be done in 1985, because in 1985 you could do nothing. So... Well, that's not entirely true. I believe there was a little bit of stuff being done, but it was so in, potentially inaccurate that they didn't really use it. This one hair was tested. And when the Innocence Project lawyers got the DNA results from that one hair, what were the odds of finding that one hair? It matched. Not Stephen. It was a cold hit in the CODIS DNA database, which is a national database that holds... DNA from people who volunteer to give it, uh, certain medical patients, and basically anyone who's ever served time in prison for anything, if people were wondering what CODIS is. Guess who uh, who matched the pubic hair? Gregory Allen. The one the PD said. Yep. And the, and the ADAs and stuff said. Yeah. Matched There's a surprise. Surprise, surprise. We have a winner, and it's Gregory Allen, not Stephen Avery. So on September 11th of 2003, Stephen was released from prison after serving 18 years for a crime he did not commit. That's a long time. A very long time. Cue the applause. He was very excited. If you've ever, have, ever had a chance to see the video when he gets out, it's a really, really sweet video because he, he held no bitterness. He held no anger. He particularly held no anger against Penny Bernston. That was actually a question he was specifically asked. You know, do you do you have any anger towards towards Miss Bernston? And he said, absolutely not. Like, she was a victim. She was hurting. She'd had a horrible, horrible thing happen to her. And, you know, it was an understandable mistake. Because, I mean, there's a very slight resemblance between Stephen and Gregory. I mean, slight, though. It's real slight. <laughs> like, they have the same color hair. And a somewhat similar jawline when Stephen is clean-shaven, but that's literally pretty much it. But at the time, didn't they both have beards? His, if The photo um, you showed me, he had, uh, his mugshot and the drawing had a full Stephen beard mustache. Stephen had a beard. I don't know for sure if Gregory Allen had a beard, because by the time you get to his mugshot later, he... He was clean shaven, so I'm not. I'll have to. I'll have to look into that. I'm not sure. Well, that would have been an impossible. So obviously, match if, then I guess Gregory must have had a beard because there's no way that you can't put one on in and then be like. And then Penny goes, "Um, there was no beard. How did he grow that beard in less than a day? Nobody's and, hair grows that fast." And that may have helped contribute to the. Okay. Yeah. So I, we're just going to go with the assumption that Gregory Allen had a beard. Like I said, because I had looked at his mugshot, but it didn't. 
that's what he looked like when he got arrested. Um, another interesting thing about when Stephen got out in 2003 was that the current uh, Manitowoc County Assistant DA, Michael Griesbach, called the former DA, Dennis Vogel, that we talked about earlier, who had since retired, to tell him that the DNA that had come back had exonerated Stephen Avery. He was fully exonerated. We released him. And he had expected, well, you know what? I have a clip of what he had to say. So let's just play Michael Griesbach's clip and uh, let him speak for himself. When I called Dennis Vogel to tell him the news that Stephen Avery wasn't guilty of assaulting Penny Burnson, I was expecting to hear some shock or some surprise, like, oh my goodness, how, how did this happen? Or I, I feel terrible about it. Or uh, thank goodness the DNA proved it. Uh, but I didn't hear any of that from Mr. Vogel. What I heard instead was a question whether or not there was anything on Gregory Allen in his file. And in fact, Michael Griesbach did find Gregory Allen in Stephen's file. Or I should say in Dennis Vogel's file of Stephen. Well, you would think so, since he was mentioned by the PD and the ADAs. Right, exactly. And uh, so when he found that, he was completely shocked because he's like, wow, um, what does this even mean for sure? And it dawned on him that what this meant was Dennis Vogel had every reason to believe or even know that Stephen was not the guilty party and that it was, in fact, Gregory Allen, but didn't care. Or at least plenty of uh, reason to launch an investigation into whether which of the two it might be. Which is exactly what happened next. There was an investigation done by the Wisconsin Department of Criminal Investigation known as the DCI. Um, through the attorney general's office. He turned, Michael Griesbach turned the whole thing over to the attorney general's office because he knew that he couldn't be involved because that would be a conflict of interest because he worked for the same office as Dennis Vogel. So the attorney general's office took over. The DCI started investigating. One of the things that was brought up in the investigation was that during Stephen's 18-year incarceration for Gregory Allen's crime, Gregory Allen went on to commit at least two other violent sexual assaults and was caught after one of them and sentenced to 60 years in prison. So two more that could have been prevented if they'd... If they'd gone after the right person, yes. Stopped being blindsided and getting revenge or whatever their motive was. Exactly. So the DCI agents who were investigating talked to everyone who had been involved. So they talked to Dennis Vogel they talked to uh, Sheriff Kasorak. They talked to all the sheriff's deputies that were involved, um, you know, local PD. I mean, they just, they, they talked to everyone because that's their job when they're doing essentially what amounts to a state-level internal affairs investigation. I mean, that's essentially what it boiled down to. And it indicated that there really was no thorough investigation of Gregory Allen, even when he was suggested by multiple people in the beginning The sheriff was very, uh, they indicated in their notes that the sheriff was very odd, like the the sheriff himself was directly involved in the case at a level they'd never seen before. Like he personally injected himself into things that his deputies could have been doing and his secretary could have been doing. Yeah, normally a sheriff is just like 
the administrative overseer. Right. But he was like directly personally involved in a lot more than he, not necessarily that he should have been, but definitely more than most sheriffs that they had investigated in the past. More than he would have been in any other case previously or right. since? That's why I they mean, called that's, it. That's what you have to compare. Is this normal for him or abnormal? Well, and they, they, even, they made it clear in their report, the DCI agents, that he was, they, they said it as he was very oddly involved. That's how they put it. They also, you know, it made it very clear that he lied. He was asked by the DCI investigators, you know, did you know anything about Gregory Allen? You know, did you know who he was? Did you know what he had done? Did you know he was under investigation by the city police? Did you know, I mean, he was asked all those questions and he lied. He denied He denied knowing, knowing anything about it. Even though they had gone to him? Yeah. Yeah. So they made it pretty clear that it was obvious to them that Sheriff Kosorak wanted Stephen Avery convicted of this crime regardless of his guilt or innocence. They couldn't say why. They didn't know why that was the case. They just knew that was clearly the case. He went after him from the start and just... It's going to be him no matter what. Any other direction, right. So after the DCI investigators file their report with the attorney general, everyone was expecting there there would be some kind of condemnation from the AG's office, possibly even criminal charges for the egregious mishandling of the case from day one. Unfortunately, that did not happen. The AG... The AG declined to take any kind of action, found no wrongdoing in the handling of the case. <laughs> um, I don't have a clue how to pronounce this woman's name. At the time, the Wisconsin Attorney General was named Peg Lautenschlager. I don't think you can get more Wisconsin than that. She is quoted as saying that her office didn't see any, quote, criminal or ethical missteps. What planet was this woman living on? <laughs> Whether they cross the line to criminal, there's certainly appeared to be some ethical problems. But at minimum, I, there was ethical. I guess problems. it depends on the laws in the state and uh, what the requirements are for an actual criminal. Sure, charge. but like everyone was at least hoping there'd be a a angry email or something. You know what I mean? Anything to make it clear that they had acted improperly, even if it was just on a superficial level. Not that they actually got in trouble for anything, but that they at least got called out publicly. That's what they were hoping for. Because even getting called out publicly and embarrassing the the officers involved can be enough to get them to change their methods. Or, yeah, I suppose. So at least that, but no, nothing. They found nothing wrong with it. Even the DCI re- uh, investigators were like, what? The DCI investigators were like, Are, what? Are you kidding? Did you read the report I submitted to you? Like, it, it was not a good scenario. Yeah, but as we know from other things, uh, officials tend to support other officials. It's kind of oh, yeah. like that thin, thin, blue, thin line. blue line. Yeah. But I mean, this is but, a little different, but yeah. But it, yeah, it happens. Oh, yeah, all the time. It's politics. Oh, yeah, it's politics. So it was decided pretty quickly after that AG report came out that uh, Stephen's only real recourse at that point to... Um, getting any kind of restitution or, um, you know, just just to get them to admit that they did wrong in some way was to sue them, which I 100% agree. 
Yeah, it's the ultimate way for a civilian I don't to think, make the... I don't think he would have done that had the AG report been different. But because there was no condemnation coming down from the top at all, like he, I don't think he had any other option. He spent 18 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. So I would sue him. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but the problem is kind of like the, the way the Sandra Morris incident triggered the domino effect that affected the Penny Bernston assault case. The lawsuit had some very negative and unintended consequences for uh, Stephen specifically, but the entire Avery family. And in the next episode, we are going to get into uh, the lawsuit and what exactly happened after that. But um, I think we're going to just wrap it up here for today. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned because we'll have at least several more covering the Stephen Avery case. This case gets, the more you dig into it, the deeper you go in, the more messed up it gets and the more crazy it gets. And the you can't, I, I can't leave a ton out. Like there's little things I can leave out, but there's so much good stuff in here that really shows how our legal system fails constantly. Well, especially when there's corruption. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we made that kind of clear with the West Memphis 3 case, but this one, honestly, after digging into it as deeply as I have, is even more egregious than that one. I mean, this one is just, I mean, stay tuned. It gets crazy. That's all I'm going to say. It gets crazy. So stay tuned, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy, and you guys have a great day, night, whatever it is where you're at, and we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences.